0: Welcome to the latest episode of our Business in Focus podcast. I'm Teresa Owe a Financial Services Partner and Head of Legal at PwC. We're excited to bring to you the next episode of our In Conversations With podcast. Today, I'm talking to Himani Hudson, Head of Audit at PwC, and Philip Broadley, Audit Committee Chair at AstraZeneca. This podcast series features conversations between our people and our guests about the impact of the pandemic on their organisation. Today, we're going to explore what we've learned from the disruptions faced over the last 18 months, as well as look ahead to the impact of climate change on business and corporate reporting. So, as I said, I'm really, really, really thrilled today, Philip, to invite you here. Um, Would you just like to introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Yes, uh, delighted to. And it's certainly a pleasure to be back having face-to-face conversations like this one. Uh, I'm Philip Broadley. I'm on the board of AstraZeneca. I both chair the audit committee, and I'm senior independent director. Uh, I've been on the board, actually, I'm halfway through my my nine year um, term of office. Uh, And I have obviously, along with the rest of the organisation, spent the last 18 months very much focused on the impact of the pandemic across our business and in particular, our initiative with Oxford University to produce a vaccine.
0: Thanks, Philip. Hermani,
2: do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you very much, Teresa. And as you said, I'm the head of audit for PwC in the UK. Um, And for the last 18 months, that has certainly meant that as well as working out how we audit remotely and now in a hybrid way, as we're back, as Philip says, to some face-to-face meetings, we've also seen into other businesses as they have faced the disruption of the pandemic. So it's been really quite a privileged place to be. Thanks, Hermione. um
0: Now, Philip, I've already said a couple of times that I'm um, thrilled to talk to you. I think just before we started, I said, um, my arm and the vaccinated parts of me all kind of thank you and your colleagues at um, AZ. But this last 18 months, Hermani talked about disruption And I can't think of any other organization that really has kind of been in the eye of that disruption, like AstraZeneca. Would love to get just your perspective on what the last 18 months has been like.
1: Sure. Well, you are one of 1.5 billion people, uh, I think, now that has had the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, So let's go back to January 2020. And I can well recall the AstraZeneca board meeting routinely held uh, at the end of the month to consider and approve the results announcement. And at that time, we, along with uh, other uh, corporate reporters, were aware of the first cases being reported in China. Um, We considered the impact that we thought that was likely to have. You can go back and look at the at the announcement. We weren't very different from anyone else. We did not foresee a, a, the pandemic. Uh, we foresaw some short-term disruption to the business. But if you move forward to April, uh, by then uh, clearly uh, the world was in uh, the, the grip of the pandemic. Uh, the UK was in was in lockdown. The team at Oxford University, led by Dame Sarah Gilbert, were in the, uh, in the stage of, of manufacturing the first doses of uh, their candidate vaccine and conducting trials. And the choice we had as, as a board uh, was whether to add vaccine production on, a, on an unprecedented scale to our key uh, business and, and to, uh, to respond to the p- pandemic in that way.
0: I love the really understated way in which you just kind of explain that um just to pick up on vaccine production I think that's not normally what aZ does so
1: that's that's absolutely right yeah. so um, Astrazeneca's routine vaccine activity is is much more limited very very different to what we were embarking on with uh, with Oxford.
2: and it it just happened so quickly, Philip. As well, like, I, I'm from a board perspective. How did you get comfortable with those decisions in that time frame that has now turned out to be such a massive, massive investment for the world?
1: We had talked about pandemics previously, and were very clear that vaccines uh, vaccines are in the in the end the only really effective way of dealing with um, a pandemic um, uh, virus. Uh, So assumptions were being made right at the start that coronavirus would be, it would evolve, but not in a way that would quickly limit uh, vaccine effectiveness. The decision was very clear. AstraZeneca's purpose is around harnessing the power of science to Improve the quality of life for millions of patients around the world. This was just, just. This was scaling that up to This is an opportunity to collaborate with Oxford on a candidate vaccine that has a reasonable potential to be effective. And time, constantly, time is of the essence. And if we're going to, you know, if if we're going to make it work, then we need to be figuring out how we're going to scale up manufacturing massively and quickly, and therefore yeah, decisions that would normally be taken over a longer period of time, mm. had to be taken, taken in days.
0: And can I pick up on that around scaling up quickly and effectively with the eyes of the world um, <laughs> on you? I'd love to kind of understand just what that sort of supply chain sort of looks like
1: now, normally, in any process of scaling up from kind of that research stage to commercialised manufacture, that would be a process that would take place over several years. Now, none of that was going to be possible for, for any of us, for any of the, of the, of the manufacturers. Uh, but what we did have with the, with the Oxford uh, vaccine was a process that was similar to others that are un- undertaken. So it was a question of, for, for our, our global manufacturing team, uh, finding some of our own capacity, but far more importantly, finding capacity around the
0: world. I think supply chain has been so much more in, in people's minds, particularly over the last 18 months. And Hermani if I can sort of turn to you, that's something that you've seen um, in your role and across audit, we've certainly
2: seen over the last two years that the speed at which um, issues become issues for all companies that we've mm. had a lot of these macro issues, which I'm sure um, have happened to AstraZeneca, but have happened at many of the organizations. So of course, there's been the pandemic, and that has been a huge um, issue for so many companies. Um, but things like, supply chain disruption um, are also a big issue um, and a continuing issue. And I think people have spent decades working on just-in-time, on very lean and efficient supply chains globally distributed. And for many years, thinking that we're moving to a, you know, the more global, the better, um, the more efficient, the better. And it's all about cost. In reality, of course, now that we're seeing that people are finding other drivers. Um, the, actually, the cost of certain supply chains will change quite dramatically. There feels to me like there's been a speeding up of a number of things that were already in train. And Philip, just going
0: back to what you've talked about on the on the supply chain, I'd love to kind of just go back and just talk about some of those. Um, some of those challenges, and then maybe come to you, Hamani, and just kind of understand what other organisations have kind of faced on that, you know, on the challenges front as well.
1: Well, there were certainly, at the outset, uh, we knew there would be there would be challenges in so significantly increasing the global production of vaccines. Yeah. One of the things that perhaps is will be surprising uh, to listeners is. In, a, in an industry as regulated as pharmaceuticals, is that there isn't actually easy data to hand as to how many vaccines are produced normally in, in the year. So at the outset, we knew how many doses governments wanted to buy from us. Yeah. Uh, and we knew that we, we had uh, our, our, our idea about how quickly we could increase production and how long it would take to, to meet those orders. Uh, but we had to make a number of assumptions about not just the the, the, the raw materials and the production sites, but then uh, how do you actually filter the the end product? Um, how do you transport it from the manufacturing plant to the filling plant?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, how do you fill it? Distribute it? Uh, and all of that is is made more complicated that perhaps than than in some other industries because all of this has to be done. Uh, maintaining a sterile environment, so it wasn't just about the manufacturing capability to make a, a vaccine in, uh, in, in measured in terms of thousands of liters at a time, but all the way through these the, the, the additional components required, and yet, for, because these are specialist products, manufacturing does tend to be concentrated in the in the hands of a, of a few suppliers, but. Uh, if you look at at what's happened, actually, the supply chain has adapted extraordinarily to the demands placed on it. Uh, And global production is now at 6.8 billion.
2: Philip, your word adaptability is is, is the relevant word. Um, And I think that's what set some companies apart from from other companies. So, you know, some companies have had to scale things up dramatically and have had to adapt their supply chains in the way that we've just heard about. But others, of course, faced the exact opposite Mm -hmm. when they faced, you know, the um, distribution channels or revenue streams completely disappearing overnight in a way that could never have been anticipated. And they then had to think about, well, what are the things that they need to do to reinvent themselves or to cope during a period where they're unable to take you know, Mm. their product to market or their services or or whatever it it was. And we can all think of various industries that were very heavily hit, uh, you know, airlines, for example, the travel industry, uh, and and of course, uh, some aspects of the retail industry massively hit, but able to adapt. A number of them were able to adapt. So I would say that um, whilst we have seen definite themes across industries, what's been really interesting is that the individual circumstances of individual companies has been more relevant than necessarily the industry that they're in, in all cases. Right. Um, you know, Some companies had um, were better able to face dramatic change because they were more adaptable by nature, mm. or perhaps they had better financing arrangements or a stronger balance sheet, um, those sorts of things, uh, or were able to take their distribution channels online uh, in a better way. I do think that the individual situation of the companies has has been a, a higher determinant in a number of in a number of cases, but across all of it, you you know our role, of course, as auditors, is to look at what are the risks yeah. and how is the organisation dealing with them, um, and, and how do they impact financial reporting, uh, and uh, we're we are the auditors of of AstraZeneca. But so I'm quite interested to also hear from Philip. You know, how have you thought about the risks? more from a business perspective and a financial perspective and in a way that we might have talked about in, in the audit relationship?
1: I, I think to answer that, I have to remind everyone that whilst we've been producing vaccines, everything else at AstraZeneca has been going on as, as normal. And actually, I, mean, we've, I think we've got over 60,000 people work for AstraZeneca around the world. I would say less than 2,000 of them have been directly involved in, in vaccines. Now, for those that have, it's been a very significant activity, which they have combined with their existing responsibilities. But for, for most of us, and I'll in, include the board in that, it's, it's we've been carrying on with, with the work that we would normally do. Right. Uh, so research has been, has been has carried on. Trials have been conducted by us and, and, and with partners. And um, results have been published, and, and um, uh, development of, of successful product has continued, and manufacturing has continued, and uh, and so on. So, the underlying risks, I would say, um, are haven't really changed, um, and they are about for the as as we look at them in the audit committee, they're about recognising what is the value that we, we attach to our intellectual property, um, is that still still valid? Um, can we successfully commercialise, by, by which I mean take from something that, that successfully passes a phase three trial, but can we actually manufacture that at, at scale? Um, does the supply chain um, function? Um, and actually, I suppose in, in, in that connection, one of the challenges that the organisation needed to to respond to uh, was um, changes in freight pattern. So you know, air freight is the natural place or natural route, um, but obviously schedules were very very uh, different. Point to point routes ceased. Um, product had to f- had to travel perhaps in more com- more uh, more com- complex ways. Then day in day out. There, there are uh, a, a continued set of compliance risks that we need to manage. So that's the the, the, the compliance with um, regulatory standards for manufacturing, for the distribution chain that I've spoken about. Um, and then, of course, there are a whole set of economic and financial risks. But that sort of takes us back almost in full circle to where we began the conversation, which was to, to, to come out of the pandemic and for economic activity, for social activity, to return to previous levels, we knew vaccines were, were yeah. essential. So actually, if we could play a part in ensuring that, that return to, pre, to as close to pre-pandemic normality as possible, then that was in the long-term interests of patients employee shareholders. And on, on top of it, there clearly were a set of, I suppose, what you could call reputational risks, um, which uh, really were around the fact that our involvement in, as a scale vaccine producer, in the, in, the, in the face of the pandemic, took AstraZeneca from being a company that is most normally reported on the back pages of the newspapers into <laughs> almost daily appearance on the front, front page.
0: <laughs> so I'm probably going to come to a last question here, which is around the sort of future um, forward. And I reminded Philip that you'd, you'd already kind of um, reminded us that we're not quite through the pandemic yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you've already touched on on some of this as well, but would love to get your thoughts on As you look forward to the future, the discussion around ESG, what you've learned over the last 18 months, how do they come together and what does that look like for AstraZeneca?
1: A couple of times you've said my comments seem understated. (laughs) So let me
2: try and
1: address that by pointing out that one of the things I find interesting at the moment is... The position that the 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 world is in, um, with I think now getting close to half the population, the global population, having received at least one dose of vaccine, but with obviously very different levels, um, and there is a whole debate in which AstraZeneca has commented about whether or not it's appropriate to be giving fully vaccinated people. Booster vaccinations when uh, so much of the of the less developed world, particularly in Africa, is still so far behind. Um, but uh, that, nonetheless, we are at a point where we've where we've achieved getting close to that milestone of half the population having had a vaccine. This time last year, it was perfectly possible that we'd be facing a second northern winter with no successful vaccine. Yeah. Uh, it you know, th- this was untried, um, and it wasn't until mid-November last year that first Pfizer and then AstraZeneca were able to publish su- successful readouts. The pharmaceutical industry accounts for about four percent, or sorry, the health, the wider healthcare uh, accounts for about four percent of global CO two emissions. Right. Wow. So we do have a part. Pop- part to play as an industry and AstraZeneca does as a company as well and we are committed to being carbon neutral by 2025 uh, within AstraZeneca and then for our entire supply chain uh, to be carbon negative by 2030. Now that has benefits not only for the, uh, the, the company itself um but there are there are potentially broader benefits from our strategies around developing uh, pharmaceutical products that can reduce severe illness which causes hospital stays and or provides an alternative to hospital-based treatments. So if we can treat, um, Chronic respiratory conditions, with products that reduce severe exacerbations that cause hospital stays, then we are uh, we're obviously improving patients' quality of life, but we're keeping patients out of what is almost almost inevitably a very carbon-consuming environment. Yeah, the hospitals are. Uh, 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 have have controlled in, in, in uh, environments. Um, treatment is obviously um, uh, energy uh, energy consumptive. So we're actually thinking not only about what we do ourselves, but how what we are doing can uh, can actually reduce hospital stays or substitute uh, for example, cancer treatments that are chemotherapy based which uh, have to be given in a hospital. For uh, immunotherapies, which more commonly can be given by a nurse in the in the patient's own home, so you're changing the setting in which treatment happens. You're changing uh, the the, the, uh, the energy consumption, and uh, almost I think by um, it's almost a truism to say, an, an alter any alternative to a hospital stay is likely to be. Uh, beneficial to the parent uh, to the patient's quality of life
0: that's a really fascinating perspective on the ESG in terms of being in that environment and, and therefore astrazeneca's contribution is actually to to make sure that patients aren't in that environment that actually no. then sort of you know consumes um, more co2 I just had not even occurred to me. So that's really, really yeah. um, fascinating. And Hermani, if I can come to you last on this, this is obviously a topic that lots of our clients are sort of talking about. Is that beginning to impact, as, as auditors, the work that you do? Or is that something that we kind of see, it's certainly in the non-financial reporting sense, that that will be more of what you do over the next few years?
2: Both. Actually, Oh, really? Absolutely both. So I think the things that are, there are some things where companies have made statements, for example, about um, milestones that they intend to achieve. Right or indeed there is regulatory change that means that there are already things that impact their financial reporting right. and to the extent that they already materially impact their financial reporting that's part of the role as, of auditors for us to understand what has what is the impact of the things that you're talking mm. about and is that properly reflected in the financial reporting in the financial statements but and, and so that, I think, is going to be a growing impact as more and more organizations think about what changes are we making to, what commitments are we making, and how do they impact the assets we have, the business processes we have, all of those sorts of things. Then there is this other part that you talked about, which is the non-financial reporting. Yeah, uh, It's often in the front half of annual reports, for example, which is where a lot of the narrative around what it, the intentions are for companies is is disclosed, but also certain metrics and certain KPIs that they intend to hit. And there is increasing um, interest from stakeholders and investors at how is that being assured? How how can we get comfortable that what is being said is? Is worked into the plans of the organisation, and that they are actually on track to hit those milestones. What, how, what were the controls that were used to pull together the information that's being disclosed? All of that, I think, there is now more and more a desire for independent assurance over that, um, and as auditors, we are ideally placed to give that independent assurance. So I see this being an area where the audit. Um, skills are used absolutely. And potentially over time, the audit itself expands to some of these areas, because I think that's what is the relevant information that stakeholders are wanting. Brilliant. Thank you. Philip
0: Hamani. this has just been the highlight of my day. Um, absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, I was looking forward to this and, and it has lived up to the billing. So thank you. Really appreciate the discussion. So that draws us to the close of another In Conversation With in our Business in Focus podcast. If you're enjoying this series, please do hit subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. Thanks everyone for listening and please tune in again soon.